Hey, what's up, guys? This is Eastman's Elevated, and I'm Brian Barney. So today on the episode, we've got on Nick Best. So Nick Best, um, he's from Oregon, and, and I first met Nick when I, I got a new Eastman's hunting journal, and he was smack on the cover with this giant bull he had killed out of Oregon. Um, he's had some really great tags over the years, and, and through raffles and through the draw system, um, and he's just made the most out of them. He, he's killed a sheep, and he's, he's actually on his way to being the first guy to get the Oregon Big Game Slam, which is all the big game species of Oregon, um, and he's just got two whitetails left. So he's drawn some really good tags, but he, he's really made the most out of them. And, and he's got some great stories, and there's some great tips and tactics mixed in with it. Um, so you guys are going to enjoy it here. Uh, this month over at Eastman's, we've got the Eastman's Hunting Journal is the sheep issue. So just a great issue. We've got six stories of giant rams that were killed you know, all over through North America. And then, and then we've also got some good staff articles in there. Uh, Rachel Attila, um, she's just an animal. She's a, she's a, a guide up North country and guides for sheep and moose and caribou and that, but just tough as nails and super knowledgeable. And she writes an article in there about being prepared for your hunts and, and having the right gear and clothing. And then there's also an article in there by Dan Picard, on field judging sheep. So I can't wait to read this one myself. Um, as, as judging sheep, we just don't get that much opportunity to hunt sheep. So knowing how to judge them and it's kind of like a, a common, common man's guide to it. So, um, I can't wait to check that one out. Brandon Mason has got his third part in, in hunting the North country. Um, you know, how to prepare yourself and how to go up there and, and do a hunt up North. So anyways, really good issue. Check it out. It's the sheep issue Eastman's hunting journal. Um, this episode is brought to you by Zeiss Optics. Um, Zeiss Optics, man, they make some high-end optics. Um, you know, I've, I was first introduced to them just a year ago or so, um, and I, I started using their 10 by 42 binos. Um, I believe it's their their Victory series, and man, what a great set of glass. I mean, I I'm a glass snob, and I I judge them to the highest standards when I'm looking through them, and I've looked through all the best, and Zeiss is right up there, if not better than than any of them. I'm just super impressed by their by their optics, their clarity, their color definition is what I noticed that kind of separates them from other high end optics. You know the there's really a good contrast with colors, which really help you pick up animals, but really psyched on their optics, psyched on their binos, and then also I run their, their scope. Uh, it's a 20 by 60 power, uh, 60 mil objective lens, just a great, it's their uh, digiscope, but um, just a great scope, uh, super clear, super crisp, and, and I take a lot of good photos through it too. Um, but but I can't say enough good things about Zeiss, and, and thanks for supporting the podcast. So, um, man, let's get this thing rolling. Nick Best, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Okay, I'm live with Nick Best. Nick, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Well, yeah, I, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast. Um, you know, I found you through your Instagram account, and then we started communicating back and forth, and you just have a bunch of great stories and a hardcore public land hunter out there. So I'm really happy to have you on the podcast and, and talk to you. Yeah, looking forward to this. I mean, yeah, I've done a lot of crazy, crazy hunts in the past and a lot of, uh, just wild adventures. So anything you want to talk about and, and we'll see what we can do here. Yeah, crazy adventures. That's what it sounds like. Um, so in Oregon, you were telling me that, so they have 12 big game species and you're 10 out of the 12 
and maybe the first one to accomplish all 12. Is that right? Yeah, so so right now there's 12 uh, recognized big game animals you can hunt. Um, we have four different types of deer here. We have a black tail, a mule deer. We have the regular white tail that everyone else hunts. And then we also have a Columbia white tail, which is uh, Oregon's the only place you can hunt that deer. Then we have two different kinds of elk, and we have bears and cougars and uh, sheep and goats and antelope and uh, turkeys. So uh, we have quite the range. Yeah, no one has ever either gotten the tags or gotten all the animals. So um, as soon as I had the goat and the sheep, I kind of figured it was something I should try for. Uh, so we're sitting at 10 out of 12 right now and hoping to get that uh, last two this coming year. That's the two white tails, so they're, they shouldn't be too big of a challenge anyways. <laughs> Man, that is wild. So, yeah, no, you got the tough ones out of the way for sure. A sheep and a goat, and you've, you've drawn some good tags over the year, but you've also you've made the most out of your tags. Um, so that sheep hunt you went on, we talked about it a little bit. Dude, that was such a wild hunt. So you drew an Oregon sheep tag. How many points did you have when you drew it? So uh, Oregon, we have points for deer and elk and bear and antelope, but we don't have it for sheep or goats. Uh, so it's just a random draw every year. So it kind of kind of gives everybody an equal shot every year. And then once you've had it, you can't ever get it again. But uh, so I mean, it was probably my 16th year of putting in, maybe something around that. But we don't have a point system, so it's just random odds every year. And I think I was the one t- or two tags out of about 500 uh, applicants. So. Wow, good for you. And um, like, uh, which area did you draw it? It was pretty rugged country, right? Yeah, so that's actually the northeast corner. It's called Hell's Canyon, and they call it that for a reason. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's steep. It's one of the biggest canyons around. Um, I think you can get to eight thousand feet and drop down near a thousand feet down the river. So um, it's a it's a big canyon, and it's steep, full of rim rocks and. Um, when we were there, it was 105 degrees, and half the unit was on fire, and it was, it lived up to its name for sure. Jesus! So that um, Hell's Canyon is that the is that Snake River? Is that which river that is? Yeah, Snake River, and then also the Amnaha River is kind of, kind of what divides that unit up there. So we were hunting on the Amnaha side. Um, if you run over the top, you're over on the snake side. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, that's some of the wildest country that the West has to offer. You know, it's just huge from in Oregon all the way into Idaho, right? And you drew the Oregon tag, correct? Yep, yep. yep. It goes Oregon and Idaho and Washington all kind of come together up there in the corner. Um, I had the Oregon tag, and yeah, all my buddies who are sheep guides and stuff, they all they know the country well. And I'd never really been up in that area, so me and my friend drove up there one day and I was very very shocked and surprised to see what that country was like and uh, it definitely puts it in perspective how hard you're going to have to work once you first get there and see those mountains and um, we got pretty lucky right off the bat we spotted a a sheep that we knew we would shoot it was a full curl just a great ram probably one of the best rams I'd ever seen in Oregon and uh you know, it was kind of a no-brainer. It was super easy. We used to spot him from the truck, and it was, you know, we thought it was in the bag. A uh, couple weeks later, the whole unit caught on fire, and that ram was gone, and that unit was closed down in that area. And, and we were starting from scratch, 
with uh, during the season. So. Oh man! <laughs> so you had this this big ram scouted, did your homework, and it's just giant, huge country that's straight up, right? And a lot of it's just super cliffy. And so you have this big ram located, and all of a sudden you get a fire in the unit, and he's just gone, nowhere to be found. Yeah, he's gone, and uh, the unit was actually uh, closed down to hunting. Uh, they kicked most of the hunters out of there. They gave the two sheep tag holders a uh, fire handheld radio so we could communicate back and forth, and they just told us to be ready to pick up and move if they told us uh, to get out of there. So we had pretty limited access to the northern part of the unit, and they kind of shoved us down to the south, and that's where we started hunting. It took us a long time to even find another ram. I went the whole opening day without seeing a sheep. Uh, we, one of my buddies, we had four or five guys out with spotting scopes, and we saw one, one, uh, one sheep all day long, and that was it. So, um, it was a little, a little devastating after our first day of scouting being so easy. Um, we ended up regrouping and just kind of looking at the maps again, looking where other hunters had taken other rams in the past, and talking to some of the locals because they they knew where the rams were and where they might be moved to during the fire so we ended up getting a group of rams located and uh, we were maybe 15 miles from where we saw the original ram and he had joined up with that group so we were lucky enough to find him again and yeah the rest is history we got a great ram on that hunt he was 194 inches I think number three in the state, and that includes deadheads and everything, picked up heads. And, uh, yeah, so that's where the story kind of got interesting, trying to get us out of Hell's Canyon with all that, uh, with that pack there, so. Oh man, wild. So you found him 15 miles away, same ram, ended up harvesting him, which is awesome, and then, and then you're way back in, and you have to get him out in 105 degree temps, and then, and then also in a fire area too, right? Yeah, so we're in the fire area. We had helicopters buzzing overhead, and and uh, you know when the smoke's kind of overhead and it just holds the heat, and it just it was miserable. It felt like an oven. And uh, that ram was about eight miles in from the road where we had taken off from the trailhead. So we were in their ways, and we were actually about out of water once we got to the ram because we weren't expecting to have to go that quite that far. So we. Uh, took care of the ram without any water on us and uh two of us decided to go downhill and one of us decided to go back uphill to get the truck and meet the others on the downhill side so me and my friend he took out pretty much all the meat himself and i took out the gun and the gear and the full body cape and the horns so we started heading downhill hoping we would hit water in the bottom before you know before he would get to the truck and get his water so we took the heavy loads down, and we got to the bottom, and there was no water where we thought there would be. So <laughs> it we, had uh, to had to be close to a hundred pounds, right, a piece. And then, is there anything worse than being out of water in the backcountry? You just like that's the yeah, one so, thing that can kill you. Yeah, each pack was well over a hundred. I would say it was uh, one of the heavier packs I had ever hauled. And yeah, we had everything to, you know. We thought we were set up, and we just weren't for that area. We got down there, and it was when you swallow and your throat starts to stick together, that's when you know you're in trouble. So we we dropped our packs, and we said we're going to have to leave the ram here and come back, and we'll just grab the, the head and do a Euro mount, but we need to save ourselves. And, 
get the heck out of here. So we dropped everything and left behind spotting scopes and guns and lots of stuff up in the woods. And wow, so it got dangerous up there. You guys were at your limits. we got to get out of here. We're leaving all our stuff, guns, spotting scope, packs, rams. It doesn't matter. we got to get out of here alive right now. Exactly. That's where we were. It was wow. just it too hot and and too steep but anyways we as soon as we drop that we go 300 yards and we hit this little mud puddle in the creek bottom that was all that was left over and it was wallowed in by cattle and and sheep and just everything it was gross and and we did drink out of it and we decided that's what we were going to do and just get sick the next day but we had a truck meeting us in the bottom and it would be okay to be sick back at the house so we went for it drank out of it and Actually put a couple couple uh, bottles of water full of that stuff and drank it the whole way out. So it was absolutely disgusting. But <laughs> we lived and we did get sick the next morning. Oh, you did, yeah. huh? I actually, I threw up all night and uh, yeah, it's just uh, seems to be a common theme is me end up puking on pack out trips, I guess. So, <laughs> um, yeah, got to the bottom and met the guy with the truck there and. And got everything out, but yeah, it, it all ended out great. So, oh, dude, that is so cool, um, man. I mean, yeah, you you just you wish and you hope for a sheep tag, but to, um, like you say, the experience that you made out of your sheep hunt, you remember that forever. I bet you look up at that ram and think of that story or whatever, closing the deal on that ram. That's so cool. Yep, yep, finding it and the hunt and all that, everything. Taking my friends along, that's the cool part, getting the tag and getting the ram. That's just why we're there, you know, and, it, and a reason to make those memories. So it was it was really fun. And, and after the hunt, we made some replicas of that sheep, and everybody got a replica. So it was it was really cool, really fun. And, and all my buddies have all those hung up in their house just like it was their own hunt. So it was that's kind of why we do it. Oh, how cool. So you got a really good circle of friends that you hunt with and share stories with probably train with research about that you can always call on any hunt and they're there huh yep no i have a group of buddies that will pretty much go do anything with us so it's it's kind of what you need anymore it's it's hard to do it on your own that kind of a hunt or my elk tag i had uh last year you you need a good group of guys that's there to help you you just can't do the kind of hunts that we want to do yeah your elk hunt so that's where i first uh learned about you is i uh, got my new Eastman's hunting journal in the mail and you made the cover of it. Um, I, you know, I've shot a lot of good animals. I've never made the cover, but that it was such a cool bull. But yeah, to make the cover, you've got to kill, you know, a giant elk and then take great pictures and then have a good story. And you had all three. I remember reading through and that, that pack out, like you say, you have a common theme where you puke, where you pack out. I think that one kind of sounded like that too. It was a giant, like seven by seven. Is that right? And just a a big long time beautiful bull you kill that was that was an Oregon tag as well. Yeah, so that was an Oregon tag. That was actually a raffle tag. So we got a little extended season longer than uh, some of the other hunters. Um, I put in for the raffles. It just as uh, kind of like I call it like my addiction. Some people go to the store and they buy cigarettes or beer. I go to the store and every week I'll buy a couple raffle tickets and throw it in the mail. So, um, wow. So I, Oregon I have, sells raffle tickets for prime tags then that you can buy nearly year round. Yeah. Kind of like the auction hunts people pay big money for the, you know, they'll go for 30 to 50 grand. Um, you can win those. And I know lots of people who've won them with just, you know, 20 to a hundred bucks in there. So 
Um, I won my elk tag with like a hundred bucks, and I won my goat tag with like two or three hundred bucks. So I mean, it definitely happens. Wow, good for you! So you got extra money, and you'll go apply for these raffle tags then, and, and just hope they pull your name out of the hat. Yeah, so it's unlimited, and actually, I think my my elk tag was probably worse odds than my sheep tag. It's just uh, it's just a random thing, and. But you put your name in enough hats, and maybe you'll get one of them. So that's wow, uh, your sheep tag or your goat? Um, so your sheep tag, you drew like standard drawing process, and then your standard. Yeah, that was a standard draw, and then um, I think it was yeah about one. Or it was about two out of about five hundred applicants. So and then wow. the the elk tag, I think they sold. I, I want to say eight thousand raffle tickets that year, and I probably had forty of them. Man, oh man. Yeah, you've had pretty good luck drawing tags. No, that's great. And like you say, you gotta, you gotta look at all avenues to get tags nowadays. In today's day and age, they're tough to come by, but yeah, I mean, the Montana, we've got something like that called the Super Raffle, five bucks a chance. Sounds like Oregon's mm-hmm. got something like that, but, um, guys would be smart to apply for that. And not that you can buy up to make these huge odds, but you, you put your, you know, you you put your hat in enough drawings, and, and maybe they'll just pull yours, and they did on that elk tag, and so it was like having like a governor's tag or just a super prime time tag where you could probably hunt all seasons and then hunt all units, or how did that work? Yeah, so I was I was out there with the governor's hunters, and and uh, I mean I had a rifle during archery season, and I could hunt after the seasons ended, and could kind of go anywhere I wanted to, even though everybody was in the same unit because. Oregon has that, those top units that we want to be in. So that's where we ended up, and I had a really good friend who had a couple sheds off of a really nice bull, and as soon as he heard that I got, well, he was standing with me when I got it, and he sent me a couple pictures and said, this is the bull we're after, and, and you're not going to shoot any other bull. So it was it was kind of a something he really he was really wanting to do that, and, and uh, with all those sheds and all the years of watching him and it was it was the elk we were going for, and so during archery season, he said, "You're not going to see that bull during archery season. You're going to see him the last week of November." And I kept going out. I have a super tag, and I'd never had anything like that. And I'm used to over-the-counter archery hunting and crappy units, and so I was out there every weekend trying to hunt and trying to find a bull. And he kept telling me I shouldn't even take bullets to the woods until November. So oh, I, man. I kept hunting. though I didn't listen to him and. And eventually, yeah, the last week in November, that's when we got that bull. So he finally stepped out, and right where right where they said he would be. So it was wild, dude. You hardly had the tag, and you already had your bull picked out that you were going to shoot. Was it tough holding out on different bulls throughout the season, or you had your mind made up it was going to be, you know, the, a giant bull or no bull? No, I wanted to. I was ready to shoot all these all these elk, and I was like, that's a good one there, that's a good one there, and and. Uh, my friends kept saying, no, we're waiting for that. Well, they called him Big D, and he had that 30-inch uh, fourth on one side. That's why they called him Big D for Big Daggers. And um, so we kept looking for him, and I kept looking for him, and it was a it was a hunt of a lifetime, I'll tell you that. we I went out there every weekend because I go to school during the week all every day. So I would go to school all week and drive over on Friday night and hunt Saturday morning and hunt all day Saturday. I'd sleep Saturday night and hunt Sunday and then drive home Sunday night and go to school Monday. So every single weekend for the whole season, 
I was over there looking for that bull until we finally found him. <laughs> yeah, going for it. Like I say, you sure make the most of your tags, and what a great group of guys to hold you off. You know, it's it's hard to hold off on a you know a good looking bull that goes three thirty, three forty, or whatever. You know, just a really nice big six point. But they kept holding you out, going, "No, that bull will show up." Like, how much time did you have left in your tag when you finally found that bull? Uh, we were down to about the last week, and I had already blown up one Toyota, so I was down to borrowing my grandpa's truck at that point. I'm, I think we were about out of time on that trip. <laughs> that was probably going to be almost the last trip I got to go on. Um, and oh, we, man. we had about a, we had a 370 bull. He's about a seven. He's a seven by seven. He crossed the road right in front of us. Could have shot him from the truck, and and we just didn't. I mean, this other bull that we ended up getting was. Uh, five to ten inches bigger and it took us over 30 hours to get him out but shooting the one from the truck you know just wouldn't be the same story and it's not the right bull and it just you know it's it's not what we were trying to do with the tag yeah good for you it just means so much more right when you're working for it and you're working hard and you had picked out that bull and dude 30 inch fours that's like unheard of i mean giant bulls have 22 24 inch fours i mean i i've seen them 26 i think is the biggest maybe 27 is the biggest i've ever seen but 30 inch daggers that's an absolute bull of a lifetime but yeah tough to hold out i uh probably a good thing that bull didn't stand still for too long that one that ran across the road but you had your mind made up and you weren't going to shoot anything but and then the story on that bull was crazy so you spotted a miles away and didn't you like bring in a new hunter on it or a, a yeah so so before i headed over that weekend my buddy calvin actually called me and asked me he said hey can my friend come watch us and uh and just hang out and hunt with us and yeah, I said sure as long as he doesn't slow us down. I mean, this is my last, the last go out here, so the tag's gonna be over. And I, as long as he's not slowing us down, and he said, yeah, well, he has a GPS. If if he has to go back to the truck, he'll go back to the truck. But he just wants to hang out and see what it's like. He was a, he's in the inner city, and the way my buddy Callum describes him is he has a pierced nose and he likes the trailblazers. So um, <laughs> he, this was his first time out in the wilderness, and. And we uh, we spotted the bull right at first light. Well, we knew where to look, and we right at first light confirmed he was there and started hiking over. And I don't think we reached the bull until about four o'clock in the afternoon, maybe five. So it was a uh, I don't even know how many hours that is the hike over, maybe ten hours. Man, and um, what, there's a river crossing in the middle, right? If I remember right. Yeah. So yeah. So coming down off the canyon, you come down into the bottom, and there's a pretty good sized river and um it's about waist high in the middle and i think when we left the truck it was two degrees or something it was very very cold that day and we get to the bottom of the river and and we tell our our newcomer earl we say okay take off your pants and take off your shoes and socks and we're gonna walk across this and he almost i think thought we were kidding uh maybe thinking there's a little hiking trail at the bridge or something uh, I'm pretty sure he thought we were joking until I jumped in and, and walked across and he figured out that was real. So, um, it was one of the harder things I've ever had to do. It was, it was very, very cold. It hurt. You couldn't feel your feet anymore. Um, but we had, we had to do it and that's what we did. So crossed that, got to the other side and sacrificed, uh, a couple shirts to dry ourselves off really good and put all of our gear back on and kept hiking up. So, um, 
got up, got the bull, and, you know, quartered him up and got everything ready to go, took care of him that day. Uh, it was pretty much dark by the time we got done with pictures and started skinning. So, got everything taken care of on the bull, and, uh, time to pack back out to the truck. It was gonna be probably two, maybe three trips with three guys. So we decided to actually leave the head and horns there as the motivator to get back out there eight or nine miles into the wilderness to pick it back up. So we took out shoulder meat and a couple hind quarters that day. Um, the hardest part of that whole thing was heading back towards the truck knowing we had to cross that river again uh, with full packs and in the dark. So um, that was that was pretty interesting. <laughs> Oh, man, what an adventure. And you've already hiked 10 hours to get to this thing and shoot this bull or whatever. Get them down, and then, yeah, I mean, that's just half the battle. These bulls are so big. Start butchering up, take care of the bull, and then, yeah, you've got to hike out in the middle of the night, go cross back across the river, heavy packs, and make it back to the truck. Did you make it back before the sun came up? Um, We made it back to the house as the sun was coming up. Um, it's a, I think it's about... 2,500 feet, uh, maybe 3,000-foot climb up out of the river. So, um, yeah, by the time we got out of there, and then there was a lot of closures in the area for road restrictions and things like that. And Yeah, by the time we got back to the truck, I think it was 4 or 5 in the morning, and uh, we actually went back to the house and dropped off Earl because we had pretty much ruined him for the week on that trip. So we, we dropped off Earl and picked up another buddy to come back in and help us for day two. <laughs> Oh man, that is commitment. Good for you. Um, yeah, it had to be tough that next day coming in, boy. Get catch a few hours of sleep, grab your buddy, and head back in for another fifteen yeah, hour, we, uh, twenty hour round trip. Yeah, we we grabbed the other guy and headed back in, and I think we got back with our last load and back to the house by. Oh, I, don't, I want to say about sunrise the very next day. Um, so I mean, we had started sun Saturday morning and ended back up at the house Monday morning, I think. Oh, dude, brutal ultra marathon. <laughs> that is crazy. I, and I call in a I call in a sick day for Monday, but Calvin was up scoring the bowl and headed to work before I was even awake Monday morning at about eight o'clock. So yeah, you're right. You got a great circle of friends. That Calvin <laughs> sounds like an animal. Yeah, that was pretty impressive. I. I needed my at least four hours of sleep after a weekend like that. Oh, man. I don't know how he went to work. <laughs> yeah, no doubt there, right? Oh, man, that is yeah. so crazy. Yeah, the story all the way from start to finish. But, yeah, public land and to kill those exceptional trophies sometimes takes, you know, exceptional effort, and that's what you guys gave on that one. Dude, that is wild. Yeah, uh, well, it doesn't get much tougher than that one. That pack out was pretty insane. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and so that bull made the cover at Eastman's, which was really cool to see. And that's where I read your story or I was first introduced to you. Um, but man, what a great bull. And, and what a, you know, making the most out of, you know, a governor type tag like that and just absolutely going for it the entire season down to the last week. It's just funny how, how tags and hunts sometimes come to the end. You know, if you're on a 10 day hunt, maybe you're getting into day eight, day nine, day 10. But if you just keep hunting and you keep pushing forward um it's amazing how things come together and came together on the bowl that you originally said that you were going to kill and you were able to catch up to him and kill him man that's just awesome yeah and that's that's what i keep saying to everybody is i mean you got to put in the time and i know a lot of guys it's if it's raining and blowing they they go back into camp and 
I mean, if you have the right kind of stuff and you're ready to stick it out, I mean, that's just extra hours that you're out there working, and uh, every hour you can put in out there is a better chance you're going to get something or see something. Good for you. I find that such a common link between, you know, good hunters that get it done is is just perseverance like being out there just like you say in all conditions any any sliver of a chance you have to fill your tag or be successful you're out there and enjoying it and it is it isn't fun all the time you know it it's sometimes it's grinding and it's grueling um but the fun comes after you're done looking back on it or or you know during it there's periods of fun but it's definitely not fun all the time but it, it yeah even even just pushing each other you have a couple good friends that can you know push each other and and you guys are both, you know, if if you can make that hill, I can make it, or motivating each other. So when we were heading up out of that canyon, uh, Calvin kept telling Earl, it's like, he goes, it's another 200 yards. And I mean, me and Calvin both knew it wasn't 200 yards. So <laughs> <laughs> if we could get him another 200 yards and then tell him it's another 100 and do that 100 and then tell him it's another 50, and you know, sooner or later we've gone a mile. So we, we keep motivating, tell him to keep going, and, and yeah, I mean, it, it is entertaining to look back and tell those stories. And and then that year, I mean, that guy was an not an anti-hunter, but a non-hunter. And and uh, this year, he went out and bought a bow and trying to get out there and do his own thing too. So it's it's really cool to to do that kind of stuff and meet those people like that. Oh, good for him. Um, yeah, it was it could go uh, one of two ways there. You could have ruined him for life on hunting, where he never wants to do it again. But for some reason, you know. You pushed him harder than he's probably ever been pushed in his entire life and pushed him harder than he even knew he was capable of. And now this year he's got his own bow and he's out there for his own experiences. It's just crazy what the, you know, what the human mind, you know, what, what you perceive, you know, in the past or what you, what you think about. And then it motivates you to get out there and do your own thing. But that's just crazy. Yeah, yeah, no, he could it could have went either way. It could have ruined him, like you said, or or could have gone out there. And we told him that that that's as bad as it'll ever get. Hanging out with us is probably about as bad as it'll ever get. So, <laughs> yeah, and he got the experience of a lifetime to be able to go do that. It probably wasn't fun at the time for him. I mean, it was probably fun. You're going for a bowl, you're killing a bowl. But then once you got it down in the grueling pack out, all of a sudden his fun day ended. But now he looks back on it and something that he accomplished and and over came you know and and now it's got to be you know one of his one of his best feats of, of his entire life i would think yeah exactly and yeah he's always talking about it and yeah he had such a good time and i know we ruined his feet for a couple of weeks but he got over it and he was happy yeah just absolutely blew him up i'm sure well and that's what i was i was thinking about you on that second day you know, your legs are tired and sore, you know, a day of packing out elk and like you say, 10 hours to get to them and how many hours out with a bull elk loaded up, your legs had to be feeling it. Yeah, that next day had to be rough. Yeah, it was rough. I mean, the first day, once you get to that elk, you know, that first 10 hours, you're you're feeling it. Then once you bring part of it out, you're really feeling it. And then day two, you start to stiffen up a little bit and it's just it's just time to either go and not think about it or or you're never going to go. So <laughs> right? We just 
buckle down and go. Man, that's unreal, Nick. Yeah, no, um, like you say, it reminds me of me and my circle of friends and some of the packouts we've had and the grueling hunts we've had, but that's just great you guys can push each other like that. And, and you guys, like I saw this winter time, and I, I know cat hunting can be controversial, but you love to get after the cat hunting. Dude, I saw your truck buried in like four feet of snow, it looked like, the other day. <laughs> Yeah, so that's our that's our wintertime fun, and that's a another buddy of mine uh, that I hunt with a lot. He uh, that's his thing is he's running hounds, and he'll he'll do it as much as he can. And we get out there and chase bobcats around. That's the only thing left in in Oregon that's legal anymore. So uh, we get out there and do our bobcat hunting. Uh, it's super fun, and basically best chances at a bobcat is is some good snow. So. We have some trucks built for the snow, and we definitely bury them that day, the picture you're talking about. Um, that was, I think, about seven feet of snow we were in. We were floating on a lot of it, uh, had the tires aired down, and we actually have a tracked-up ranger that we buried that day and actually burned up some belts and blew out the motor, and that thing wasn't working anymore. So we tried to get lower in the mountain and tried to go in with the Dodge and had the tires aired down, and that thing's just built for snow and yeah we buried that thing a couple times and had to call for some reinforcements to come help us dig out and winch out and and tow us out and we ended up actually getting it ourselves eventually before everybody got there but it was a it was a bit of a mess yeah oh man so they don't let you hunt uh mountain lions anymore huh yeah no mountain lions i'm not sure when that ended it was in the 90s or something like that but yeah not for a long time no mountain lions in oregon so, uh, yeah, actually the numbers are getting pretty out of hand right now anyways. Oh, but. I bet. Well, and that's what I think so cool about that wintertime, and I, I haven't had the chance to go experience it for myself. I've just talked to it, talked about it with a couple buddies that are really into it, and those guys that are into their hounds, like your buddy, they're serious about it. They look forward to that season all year long, and they love to watch their dogs work, and they love to be out in the wintertime, but yeah, I think it's so great. I really want to go on one of those things, because it isn't just cut the dogs loose, and all of a sudden you got a cat treat, and then you shoot the cat. I mean, it's like an adventure. Like burying your it's, truck, letting your dogs loose, and you're chasing them for 10, 20 miles through the snow, lost in the middle of the night. Like the stories they come back with are just wild, and I just want some of those experiences. Exactly. Well, once you're here, if you're here at the Sportsman Show, we'll probably take you out. But uh, um, no, it is crazy, and it's some stories. And and what it is is mostly is about the dogs. It's can you figure it out? Can you train them? Can you get the right equipment can you get the dogs working right and and is actually just to show you what it is i mean we're up there and we have bobcat tags and you can shoot them if you see them and we had a bobcat run right across in front of the ranger and we're looking at it and and we're looking at each other and the dogs were out running another cat and we're like we need we need more dogs we need more dogs and we're looking at each other and someone in the back seat like you guys can shoot that right now <laughs> We were, that didn't even cross, the thought of shooting it didn't cross our minds. The thought of it was, we need a dog to run it, you know? Good for you. We didn't even think about killing the thing. We were trying to, trying to get more dogs to run it. (laughs) Just the fun of the adventure, right? You'd rather go chase it for miles, miles back in the snow and have your dog after it than you would shoot it right there and be done with it. Exactly, and and we know certain cats in certain areas. We say, oh, this is that black cat that we ran the other day, or this is that other one that will twist us up down this creek. And you 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 get to know them all, and 
you know which ones have outran you and where they're going to outrun you at. And it's just uh, it's really fun. But yeah, the adventure too is is a lot of it is that snow hunting and everyone's up there burying their trucks and sliding off the road and chasing chasing dogs down the road in the snow it's it's pretty interesting yeah how do you even hike around in that country do you use snowshoes or um <laughs> snow skis or you you just um uh march through the snow in waist deep snow i prefer to march through uh we have snowshoes in the back but um i generally march through uh, a lot of the other guys put on the snowshoes just depends on what the snow's like if there's a crust layer or not if it's going to hold you or not and um yeah i mean i i generally just plow through it and right and see how close i can get so i don't we know call we always it, have snowshoes we call it post holing but yeah those snowshoes they just don't work that good do they i mean on angles or like if you like you're right if you get the perfect snow then they work great and they keep you up on top but God, they're just heavy, and they get caught in the snow, and you end up sinking anyways, and you can't go down angled hillsides, and it seems like those things are a nightmare to me. I'm with you. I'd rather post hole through the snow, but um, you talk about some work. Try post holing a mile through uh, waist-deep snow. Yeah, no, that's that's what it is, and I was a couple, couple weeks ago, we got some of those snowstorms. We were chest high, and we were actually treed on a bobcat, and I tried to get, we couldn't hear the dogs and on the GPS, they were maybe 200 yards away, 100 yards away, I couldn't hear them, and I'm like, why aren't they barking like they're treed, and I, they're like, well, go up there and see what it's like, and I head up to them, and at some points, I was almost shoulder high in snow, it was terrible, and get up there, and the dogs and the cats were kind of staying on top of it, I was breaking through, and get up to the dogs, and they were treeing, but they were buried in the snow so far that you couldn't hear them <laughs> their heads were under by the time they had ran around that tree in circles so oh wild um man yeah that sounds like a ride i gotta make it over there in the winter time i just want to go on the adventure with you guys up in the snow it sounds great yeah no it's a blast and depending on how much snow we get we have different vehicles for it we have like i said we have the dodge if we get a little bit of snow we got that ranger and then we also have a snow cat that's made just for the snow and what they groom the ski runs with so we got one of those turned into just a hound hunting vehicle and it's got a dog box on the back and well, we're pretty much ready for anything as far as the hounds go yeah i think i saw a picture of that machine yeah you guys get crazy snow over there on the west side of oregon that stuff just stacks up in the mountains but yeah you guys got a rig for it like you say it looks like a tank to me or something with the with the tracks but that thing will about go anywhere huh yeah, we're not. Yeah, some of the eastern eastern side of the state, they'll get a couple, you know, uh, six to eight inch storms in the year. But we'll we'll come up there and we'll have three or four feet of snow in a night sometimes. So um, we kind of got tired of it, and and we we're also breaking a lot of stuff trying to just plow through it with regular vehicles. So I almost thought it was a joke when I saw the snowcat for sale, and I mentioned to my buddy, you should get this for for the hounds and. I, you know, I thought he was gonna laugh, and he actually called me the next day and said, "Hey, I'm heading over to buy that thing." So <laughs> it was, uh, it was funny, but it's, it actually works out really good. Huh? I love how every different place, like throughout the United States, every state and every terrain and landscape, but it, it's all different. And Oregon's different than any other state out there. But you guys have some really good hunting around there, and, and uh, like you say, the West Side. 
it just everything gives you different obstacles and different challenges that you got to overcome and and then also different equipment and different things that that make you more successful there but yeah i'd i'd never think to go buy a tank to go run cats but it's got to get away <laughs> you got to get away from most of the competition with that thing too i would think yeah, no, we'll never really see other cat hunters around where we're at. Sometimes they'll run in there with snowmobiles, but even that gets hard if you're in three or four feet of powder to to stay on top on those. And uh, and then you got one, maybe one or two dogs on a sled on the back. So um, we can take eight people and take a whole bunch of dogs and have a good time. And yeah, it's just just kind of what we ended up doing. Hmm. But yeah, back to like what we first started talking about with the all the animals in Oregon. Uh, we have the craziest terrain. I mean, we got coastal rainforest and then snowy mountains here in the Cascades where we can get 8 to 12 feet of snow, and then you're back on the desert side, and then mountains over on the desert side that resemble more like Colorado country, and we got, we got pretty much every kind of landscape you'd imagine around here, so it, it does make buying gear a little hard because you have to have about one of everything. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's crazy. Um yeah, you get so many different terrains around there to hunt and so many different game animals too. Like lately you've got really into mule deer, but um you probably got a lot of blacktails over on that coastal rainforest. I grew up like on western Washington, same thing where we had the Cascades and the eastern part of the state. And and I was quite a bit younger just a kid growing up. Um but we hunted a lot of blacktails in that coastal rainforest and then the the Cascades up and through there. You probably got some pretty good blacktails under your belt too i would bet yeah so i have a couple good blacktails and uh basically a blacktail in the rut it's probably one of my favorite hunts to ever do actually but i don't get to do it too often because the way our seasons are set up if i get a general archery tag i can hunt september anywhere in the state and then we can hunt november on the west side only so that's usually when you're hunting the rutting blacktails um i generally tag out on a mule deer in september and I just don't ever have that blacktail tag left over anymore by then. So yeah. every every five or six years, I'll get to hunt blacktails, and, and it, it is really, really fun. It's probably one of the hardest things to do and consistently get a big animal. It's it's They're, they're ghosts. Uh, yeah, that's a good problem to have, but what a great tag. So a general tag will get you around a lot of the units in the state, and so you always end up heading to the east side, and you've been successful with your bow a lot lately, huh, in September? Yeah, so over on the east side, it's pretty much all I do. I've I don't even know if I've gone on a rifle deer hunt. Um, so yeah, almost always with just a general over the counter tag, and and we go out to eastern Oregon, and and I just kind of started getting into the trail cameras and stuff out there, and trying to keep track of deer. And I was actually the deer I got last year, I had watched him for three or four years, and. Um, and I, I wanted my wife to get that deer, and she has been bow hunting for a long time, and then she had to take off for the last four years with the kids, so she hasn't been able to get out for a while. So I said, okay, I got this deer. He's coming by the trail camera almost every day. And um, so she takes off a couple days, and I get a couple days off of school, and we head over there, and it's just going to be me and her sitting in the tree stand. We got babysitters, and, and we sat there for four days, and, Saw like seven bears and no deer. So the bears had moved in. So uh I'm like, all right. I'm like, the bears are gonna, you know, they'll they'll get kicked out of here once the other hunters start kind of moseying through the area. And 
And we went home for a weekend, and she came back, and she was going to give it a couple more days. And I had that buck back on camera again almost every day. And, and she sat there again, and that buck never came in in the daylight again. So she's like, finally, I mean, she had to come back and watch the kids, and I stayed over for an extra two days. That very next day, that buck came in. Oh, <laughs> and, no. Uh, in the daylight, and I shot it. But So I felt bad shooting her deer, but it, it was a deer we were watching for three years. And... um. I think that unit has one of the most rifle tags that they give out for the draw, and there's a late season hunt in that unit, and then there's also the general hunt in that unit, and um, it gets hunted a lot. So um, for that buck to survive that long, I think he was, I haven't got him aged yet, but he's probably about eight or nine years old. Um, for him to survive that long in a general unit, it's just crazy to me. Dude, isn't that crazy that he could survive in there and, and uh, have his plays in there and then you're able to harvest him? Yeah, eight or nine years old, that's a really old mule deer, especially for a hard-hunted unit. Yeah, that's crazy and, and yeah, bittersweet. And he, went, he went 194. Oh, wow, uh, what a had, buck. I think he had seven squirrel bligards, guards, so he was, he was just an old buck and and scored really well for, you know, an archery buck. And, um, yeah, it was, just, it was really cool. It, yeah, it's like you said, it kind of sucks not being able to have him on camera. I watched him every year, and I'd he'd show up in, he'd show up in like, mid-May, and I'd see him on there, and he'd have all his eye guards poking out just as he's starting to grow. So I'd be like, oh, there he is. And, yeah, we watch him forever. But, um, yeah, it was definitely a deer that was worth harvesting out of there. Oh, that's crazy. So I haven't used trail cameras at all. Um, you know, a lot of my mule deer hunts are out of state or up uh, in the high country up and through there, and I do a lot of spot and stalking. Like, how do you how do you set up your trail cameras, or how do you pick your spots for your trail cameras? Um, so this spot, this was uh, kind of just a crazy spot. Um, it's not... It's not backcountry like all my other hunts. It's not way up high. It's, there's nothing hard about this spot. Um, I actually can see trucks driving down the gravel road from from my tree stand. So it's not a. It's nothing secret. I was taking a buddy in there elk hunting, and I I said there's a there's a bull right there bedded down and pull out the binoculars. I'm like that's a buck, and it was a 200 inch buck just bedded down on the hillside. And oh, we're right next to the gravel road where people can drive. And I'm like, oh, man. So uh, he didn't have a tag, and I did. So for the deer, he had an elk tag. I was just calling for him. So I get up there, and and the buck was bedded down. And I draw back and wait for him to stand up and wait and wait and wait. And, and when he finally stands up, another buck stood up. And I had like a 170 buck blocking my 200 buck, which I would have loved to shoot 170 in Oregon, but uh, not with that other buck standing there. So, um, anyways, he gets away because the other buck never did move, and this buck moved first, and that deer got away, and my brother had a rifle tag, that tag I was telling you about that has, you know, everybody draws it, so he had that tag, and I told him, go stand right here, and, and that buck's running this ridge, and he went there, and he killed it, opening day rifle season, and I think it went 198. Wow. And uh, so I'm like, I don't know why there's so many bucks on this little ridge right here. And it's surrounded by roads and surrounded by four-wheeler trails and people hunting all other sides of it. I just never see anybody on this ridge. And uh, put a camera right up on the peak of the ridge, right at the edge of the timber. And, um, yeah, for years I'd just been getting uh, maybe 20 to 25 different bucks every year. Wow. And just keeping an eye on them, and they're just 
going right down the ridge line, and I just keep an eye on them, watch them, what time they cross by, and um, I do put out mineral licks and stuff for them in the off season, like summer times and stuff like that, and uh, they kind of they kind of quit using those near any time when you can hunt. They kind of stop once their velvets, you know, about to come off. So they quit using those, but you can still pretty well tell when they're going to be running up and down that ridge, and we just sit and kind of wait for them. Oh, wild. So, yeah, I mean, um, not every spot you find is a backcountry spot, and I mix and match too. You know, I love to hunt the backcountry, love to hunt the wilderness, but I've also got sleeper spots too, and those sleeper spots, sometimes they can just be like a mile-by-mile piece of state land that's sitting amongst a bunch of private land, or maybe they're just an overlooked spot like – there's a lot of spots like yours next to the road, like next to a highway where there's no real pullouts to glass and nobody really looks. But I, I think it's important to mix and match those sleeper spots. And there's some giant bucks and giant bulls that come from those sleeper spots. And I know, you know, some of my best elk hunting, like I, I like to hunt way back in the mountains and elk hunting, but I've also got this spot with, with roads cutting, crisscrossing through it everywhere. And there's places where you can get way off the roads, but sometimes you'll be chasing elk and, and you'll cross a road road or cross two roads just chasing them you know canyon over canyon or coulee over coulee and i know you know i've been on some giant six point bowls where i haven't bedded for the day and i'm waiting to make a play or whatever but i can hear every truck drive over the cattle guard just you know and you're like 300 yards from the cattle guard but i think it's important like as as hunters that we're intelligent we take advantage of of the easy ones and not just always go for the hard ones as well like you've done in that spot you know you you found that one buck in there and then now you take like this approach to it too where you're not spotting stalking them which which is probably the more intelligent approach because you don't want to blow them out of there so you use a tree stand and you go in and you're really low impact and you keep track of all the bucks with with pictures of them in and through there and got them moving through and then you strategically place your tree stand use the wind and then sit in there when it's time to go kill that buck or sit in those different stands and and try to outsmart them so you know i think that's just as as big of a feat as going back in the wilderness and killing them is just outsmarting those big bucks wherever they live and having those those little sleeper spots like that yeah exactly and it, and it was pretty hilarious when uh, i had a buddy who was sitting in a ground blind almost the whole, the whole first half of the year somewhere here in oregon and he was waiting, he was waiting for a certain buck too and 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 we'd so we'd so we'd text back and forth and we'd say still sitting still sitting still, 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 still waiting so i saw one deer today you know kind of our kind of our, our boring boring stories to each other we'd say so text all day long waited waited I go and 
hunt animals. I, I don't have to be in the backcountry, but if that's where they are, that's where I'll go. And if they're next to the highway, that's where I'll go. But we just put our time in to find them, and then that's where we hunt them. Yeah, hunt them where they're at, right? Hunt them where they live. I actually watched one of the biggest bulls I've ever seen in Oregon walk right across one of the major highways in the state while we were sitting there on a ridge line. <laughs> like, I hope no cars come by right now. And that it was a good 405, 410 bull, and he walked right across the highway. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> like, oh, no. Yeah, you find them where they live. Um, that's crazy. Uh, my recording on my headphones got a little digy when you were saying that, hunting it out of the Honda. I'm not sure if it recorded that way, but, yeah, you were saying your buddy was a couple miles away, and you were hunting him out of your Honda Civic, parked off the highway, hunting that giant buck, and killed him back there, 194, and, and within a half a mile from the road in that spot. But, um, yeah, how intelligent of you to hunt them where they're at and having those sleeper spots, I think, is important. I know, you know, just like I was telling you, just in my home valley here, you know, we've got five or six sleeper spots where sometimes you can't find an animal in the national forest. We got really heavy hunting, you know, in, in general season, whether it's general rifle or, you know, general bow usually isn't too bad, but definitely general rifle. And if I'm hunting with my bow, um, you know, you, you can hardly find an animal from the access points and where everybody's going, but just thinking outside the box and hunting those, those little mile by miles or, you know, maybe it's three miles by three miles or sometimes it's like a quarter mile that you have to walk on public and then it opens up into a bunch of big public land. But those sleeper spots, no, those things are money. I'm with you. You hunt them where they're at, no matter if you're hunting out of a Honda half a mile from the road or you're 10 miles back. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's just, you know, years and years of research and looking at maps and kind of trying to figure out where the deer are. And, and I mean, we put out a lot of cameras to try to figure out where they're heading to. And we'll see them in the springtime or pick up sheds. And that doesn't mean that's where they're going to be. So, I mean, we have, I mean, I, I might run 10 or 15 trail cameras in a season and try to pick them up. You know, I'll get the same deer on one camera five miles away and then we'll piggyback the, the old camera he was on before and try to catch where he's going to be next and keep jumping him ahead until we find out where he's sitting in August and and that's where we'll start to set up. So. Man, crazy. So you're just gathering all this research, you know, and 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 looking at maps and and looking at places and and looking at public land, but what did you say 15 trail cameras, 10 to 15 trail cameras? That's a lot of information coming in. Yeah, that's a lot of cameras, a lot of pictures and a lot of batteries. <laughs> so Oh, dude, um, I bet. <laughs> Duracell yeah, likes it, you, huh? It's a lot to go through. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, yeah, and that's, uh, crazy. And then, and then I think it's important too for looking for these animals in, in different seasons. Like you're saying during shed season or winter range or early summer, they all have different habits and different behaviors. But it just seems like the, the different times you can look. Like if there's a mule deer unit I really want to hunt, like I try to go look at the winter range and see what type of bucks are there with bulls. If I want to hunt a mountain range, look at the winter range and see what types of bulls are there. And, and then, you know, also in the springtime when you're, when you're out looking for sheds, you know, those travel routes and travel corridors are the same travel routes and corridors that they'll take during the fall when they're migrating. And so if you can find the way they like to move through country and the trails and find where they're their sheds are you know a lot of times they'll be using that country i know you know a lot of our elk sheds 
they'll be, you know, in their winter range is where they elk shed and then going back up, receding back into the mountains in the springtime. But a lot of those places they hang out shed season, you'll find them during hunting season, like during, you know, if you get deep snow or you get the right conditions or, you know, if they're going back in. But I just think it's so important or so intelligent what you're doing too is looking for those deer in different seasons and trying to draw correlations and catch them where they're at right now. I think that's really good. Yeah, and, and this year, this season, we'd actually, one of my buddies had taken a really nice Roosevelt, and um, we had seen him the year before, bloody bases, and I mean, we can't find his sheds because there's so many blackberry bushes and just thick brush on this west side, but uh, we had seen him with bloody bases, and and uh, so that's where he was shedding, and that's almost exactly where he was come September, so. Was he really? Yeah. Oh, good for you guys. Coming right back into the same clear cuts. So if you can find where they're shedding, yeah, that's a, a good spot to start looking for the fall too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just connecting the dots when you do find a big critter like that, where he'll be and, and where he's migrating through. But, man, that's so killer. Yeah, you got a, a good network of buddies, and you got a good thing going in Oregon. You're taking full advantage of where you live, that's for sure. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, two more animals, and then we should be should have everything from Oregon, and, and maybe I'll have to start looking out of state. <laughs> Yeah, man, that's crazy. So you got the regular whitetail left and then the Colombian whitetail. How tough are those going to be to harvest, especially the Colombian whitetail? Like I've heard of that deer, but I don't know much about it. It's a, a smaller subspecies. Is that right? Yeah, so basically the, the regular whitetail, it's, uh, yeah, it's, they're never that hard anyway. So um, that one's just more about I've never got a tag because I've always been mule deer hunting. And so this year I finally – Said it. I'm gonna not mule deer hunt. I'm gonna go get that whitetail, and then the uh, the Colombian whitetail. It's more like your coos whitetail, I guess. Little. It's like a little small whitetail. Uh, big bucks like 130, 140, and a big body is like 100 pounds maybe. Uh, they're they're little deer, and they live down on. They're on the west side of the Cascades, and they actually were uh, protected up until about five or six years ago. Um, it's a very, very expensive hunt for a lot of guys trying to finish up the North American slam. So some people sell private land hunts for up to seven to nine thousand dollars. Um, I've been looking around for years trying to ask buddies for tags since I'm a poor college student. So, um, <laughs> I'm trying to get a tag and cheapest I found, it's a great deal and it's a buddy deal and it's about two grand. And, um, I finally just said I'm going to burn my my points in Oregon and and there is one area you can go and it costs you about 11 years and uh, I finally just said I'm going to burn my points and not go for a rut mule deer tag and I'm going to shoot the little white tail with my 11 years of points. <laughs> ah, good for you though. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, and it'll, it, you know, it's like anything too. You love hunting mule deer and, you know, you, you love hunting blacktails or whatever it is, but going to hunt that Colombian whitetail, it'll be an adventure and it'll be, you know, it'll be different than anything you've ever done. And don't they live, like I, they call them a Colombian whitetail. You say the west side of the Cascades. Do they live like, around that Columbia River and all that that broken open country in and through there or do they live like in the thicker cascades or where do they live at Yeah so they're like they're a very valley type of deer there there are a few along the Columbia River the big population the population you can hunt is down near Roseburg Okay and it's uh, kind of rolling grassy oaky hills uh, right around town is where they are so I would say 
95% of them are on private, which is why most of the guys have to pay the money to get the deer. Um, there is a place called North Bank Habitat, and that's who pretty much that's kind of their study area where they kind of reintroduced the deer and uh, kept tabs on it. And They actually had a lot of hunts to get the blacktails killed out of there so that they could increase the whitetail numbers. And um, That's the tag that I'm putting in for because it's 100% BLM. It's kind of where they started the to reintroduce these deer back. It was the first place you could ever hunt them again in Oregon. And uh, so, it's, yeah, it's just, it's the only place you can really hunt without knowing landowners. And so it, it does cost a lot of points, and that's just for a muzzleloader tag, too. I think a rifle tag costs you like 14 or 15 points. Wow. Well, good for you committing to burning your points uh, to get the Oregon slam. I'm pulling for <laughs> you. Yeah, you're going to be a, a whitetail hunting nut this season. Yeah, exactly. And I had actually hunted the North Bank back in the day when I was like 12, and uh, when the, they had youth tags in there. And before you could hunt Columbia whitetails, they, that was how they got the blacktails out. They let the youth hunters in there. So I used to hunt it back when I was a little kid, and that's one of the first places I ever hunted. And so it's going to be really fun to go back there and go for the whitetails that we'd always see running around us while we were chasing blacktails. Yeah, good for you. Um, yeah, no, that will be awesome. Going, getting back to your roots, hunting where you started. Yeah, and I, I actually went down there. I helped a buddy with a blacktail tag. Another youth hunter. He was down, not on, not in there, but we uh, got one a little bit further south than that, and then we drove up after that and checked out the North Bank just to see what kind of whitetails we could see, and uh, did see a couple. So I mean, definitely got my hopes up and probably helped me decide to burn my points. So. Um, it's definitely something, definitely something I'm gonna do, and I was kind of hesitant to do it, but I really think it's the way to go. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, I'm pulling for you. I'm gonna be watching your Instagram, which you're at uh, Best Nick on Instagram on there. Um, so I'm gonna be watching for your two big whitetails this season, so you can be the first one to get the Oregon Slam. And man, I just uh, respect you a ton. Um, you sure make the most of, of Oregon hunting, and you make the most of those tags you've got. Just a beautiful bull you killed and beautiful ram and and we haven't even got into your goat and the other stuff you kill. We gotta do it again. Um and I do wanna make a trip over there and have an adventure in the snow with you guys here one of these years. And if if you ever need any information out of state or whatever, make sure you get a hold of me and, and I'll point you in the right direction. But uh yeah, you're doing you're doing a good job over there in Oregon for sure, Nick. All right, thank you. And uh yeah, I know it's it's been awesome and uh yeah, Oregon's been fun and it's just been nice chatting with you, and yeah, definitely, if you're ever out this way, we can definitely get you up in the woods. We we need some good snow just because our time's kind of valuable, so we're always busy with either work or I'm busy in school. And uh, But yeah, so snow, snow's right, and you're around. You're more than welcome to come join us. Yeah, thanks a bunch. I really appreciate it. And you're getting ready to be done with school, right? I have five more months left after nine years. Wow, good for so, you. That's commitment it, as, as well. That's been another journey, yeah. Yeah, good <laughs> not, for not you. Not quite as fun. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of hard work, I bet. A lot of work, yep. Yeah, well, congratulations on that, and congratulations on all your hunting, and, and thanks a bunch for, for being on the Eastman's Elevated podcast. Yeah, and hey, I guess we'll say this. If anyone's looking for a dentist in the next five months <laughs> in the Portland area, look me up. Yeah, for sure. Right on. Yeah, good for you, Nick. Well, yeah, sounds good, man. We'll we'll right. talk to you again soon, and uh, thanks again for being on. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Nick Best. 
Uh, boy, he had some great stories there. His, his uh, sheep story and then his elk story, just the the trials and tribulations he went through to harvest those animals on public land. That was really cool and, and, and really pulling for Nick to get his, his organ big game slam. And, and I can't see, I can't wait to see what else he comes up with. He sure makes the most of those good tags. So that was a really fun conversation. Um, boy, I, I had one point of that recording that kind of cut out. Um, just our phone reception kind of cut out there, but I, I think that's the only spot and I kind of addressed it so we can make out everything. So, um, that's how it goes when you're a do it yourself, uh, podcast recording, but, uh, uh, the, the other part of it, I think turned out all right. And, and I'm surprised it did. I had, uh, we had been trying to make this date happen to record this thing with Nick and, it just happened to work out the night that my nine-year-old was having a big birthday party. So she had about nine or ten little girlfriends over for her birthday party. And so um, when you're nine and you're partying, um, boy, you're slamming doors and screaming and high pitch and yelling. And so I had to barricade myself back in my master bathroom back there to record that thing and, and get it all done. But they did a good job. They were quiet for the most part. And so we were able to get it recorded anyways. But uh, yeah, really fun talking with Nick and and uh can't wait to do more i just i just love this platform being able to talk to different hunters around the country and and, and get their take on on public land hunting and and what makes them successful so so cool um so this episode was brought to you by zeiss optics again guys i just can't say enough really high-end optics and i'm just super impressed with what they've come up with so give them some love for supporting the podcast um and and there at eastman's again we've got that sheep issue coming out so make sure you check that out and and uh boy we got some good guests coming up i just can't wait to keep releasing these things one to two a week and and uh, getting good information out there so excited to see what the future holds here so uh thanks again to you guys for for listening in and all the support that you guys give me on this podcast it really means a lot to me so um have a good week and i'll check in with you next week